Turn again to the Gospel of John, the first chapter for this morning's text. I invite you to turn there with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The true light, the light that, when it shines, brings to light the things hidden in every man's heart. The true light, Jesus Christ, came into the world, and when he came, he came to his own because... He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And if it was made through him, it belongs to him. He made the world. He made Minneapolis. He made St. Paul. He made all the suburbs. He made everybody that lives there. He made everybody in this room. And so when he came into the world, he came to his own. He came to the house that had been built by him, the house of humanity in which he wanted to dwell. And he came to his own when he came. And he came to his own according to these verses, and his own received him not. He came to Minneapolis, and Minneapolis received him not. He came to the department stores, and they rejected him with season's greetings instead of Christmas. He came to restaurants, and they rejected him with holiday greetings instead of Christmas. He came to hospital foyers and they rejected him with Noel instead of Christmas. He came to the advertisers and the marketers and they made slick secular appeals with no reference to him and rejected him in their whole enterprise. He came to the public schools and they rejected him with their Christless plays. He came to the music and they rejected him with their toned down carols and their wordless songs. He came to the public speakers and they rejected him with empty words that please everybody. He came to his own and everywhere his own received him not. But according to verse 12, as many as received him who believe in his name, to them he gave authority to become children of God. Which means that not everybody is a child of God. 
Isn't that what that means? As many as received him who believe in his name, to them he gave the power, the authority to become the children of God, which means not everybody is a child of God. You know, there are a lot of people today who talk in vague terms about God being the father of all mankind and we're all brothers and sisters. There's an element of truth in that, in the sense that we're all created by God. But when the Bible gets right down to talking about God the Father and who his children are, it's very clear that there's a dividing in humanity. As many as received him, who believed in his name, he gave the authority to become his children. Nobody else is his child. And therefore, the question I want to press on you this morning and have you pressing in your mind is, not everybody is a child. Am I a child? Not everybody is a child of God. Am I a child of God this morning? Not everybody is a child. Am I a child this morning? Now, the difference that will make to you is this. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. Therefore, if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. There are slaves and there are children. The slaves will not remain in the house of the Lord forever. The children will remain in the house of the Lord forever. Therefore, when you ask yourself the question this morning, am I a child? What you're really asking is, will I abide with God forever or will I be cast out someday? Will I be turned out of the house someday because I've been acting like a slave? Leading a life with no filial love to the Father. No childlike connection with Him. Will I be rising to the resurrection of the judgment according to John 5.29? And so the question before us this morning is, am I a child of God? Will I live forever or will I be judged and enter into condemnation? And these verses, especially verses 12 and 13, give a very clear answer as to how you become a child of God. And so I want to try to answer that question. And if you are already a child of God, do you know how you became one? Do you know it so that you can articulate it in song and praise and poetry to the Lord? I was just reading again this morning and yesterday trying to memorize, do not be drunk with wine, but for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. And I said, oh God, we don't do that in my family. Do you do that in your family? Are you full of the Spirit in your family? Maybe if you don't, maybe if you don't sing around your house and the children don't sing and you don't sing, maybe you just don't remember how you became a child of God. You've forgotten and you need to be reminded. So maybe even for those of you who are in the family this morning, there will be life, there will be newness. Verse 12 is real clear, I think as far as the two conditions that are laid down for becoming a child of God. It says, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave authority to become children of God. And so two things, receiving Jesus and believing Jesus. Let's take those one at a time. What does it mean to receive him? 
receive Jesus. And I don't have any fancy definition. Here's what I would say it means. It means welcoming him into your life for who he is. As who he is. If he offers himself to you as Savior, you welcome him as Savior and you welcome his salvation. If he offers himself to you as leader, then you welcome his leadership. If he offers himself to you as provider, then you welcome his provision. If he offers himself to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel and accept it. If he offers himself to you as protector, you take refuge in his protection. If he offers himself to you as an authority, you welcome his authority. If he offers himself to you as king, you welcome his rule over your life. It simply means when he's there giving himself to you, which he is ready, you welcome him for who he is. It's that simple. I take you into my life, into my home, into my marriage, into my work, into my relationships, into my job, into my dreams. I welcome you. Come in. Be what you are here for me. But I sense as I look around this scene that people are giving this word receive a different meaning today. Sort of like it means... He knocks on the door and you open the door and say, oh, Jesus, son of God, I believe that you're the son of God. Please come in. Here's your room. Clunk. You shut the door and you may stay here as long as you stay in there and don't play your music too loud because I dance to another tune over here. So now I've received him and he's in my life and I'm saved. Now, the, the problem with that is that as you read the New Testament to try to get a reading on what it means to receive the Lord, that kind of receiving is exposed as sham. Let me show you. Remember the story in Luke 4 where Jesus comes to his own in Nazareth? He came to his own. And he goes into the synagogue and he opens the scroll and reads Isaiah where... Uh, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And, and in verse 22, it says, the people heard him gladly and marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And six, six verses later, you know what it says? They were filled with wrath and tried to throw him off the cliff at the edge of town. Why? They had received him. They were excited about his being in their presence, in their synagogue, as one of them. But you know what had happened in those six verses? Jesus had fingered their pride and pointed back to the time when Elijah and Elisha went to Gentiles, not just Jews. And therefore, I, the Messiah, I'm going to be like that. And you don't have a corner on salvation. I'm going to go to the nations and you won't be able to brag anymore about being a Jew. And they threw him off a cliff if they could have. Now, I just ask you, did they receive Jesus? No, they didn't. Receiving Jesus is not welcoming in him into the house of your life, putting him off in a little room called religion and saying, keep your music down because I dance to another song over here played by the world and by my own pride. 
That doesn't save anybody. Receiving Jesus is not peaceful coexistence with a, with a man who makes no claims. Receiving Jesus is real simple. You welcome him into your life for who he is, not for who he's not or who you want him to be, but for who he is. That's condition number one. Condition number two, but all who received him, who believe, it is present tense, by the way, in the original language. I'm not sure why the RSV and the NIV translate it with a past tense, but the NASB and the King James get it right here, I think. It is an ongoing action. Those who are going on believing, he gave authority to become children of God. So we need to ask, what does it mean to believe? This gospel is the gospel of believing, the activity of believing. Did you know that the noun for belief or faith never occurs in this gospel and that the verb to believe occurs over 90 times? I wonder if there's an implication in that. That's an amazing thing. Believing is something you do. Now, what is it? Well, instead of my bringing a definition from either my theology or or elsewhere in the New Testament, let's let John tell us a few things about believing. Go with me on a little tour of John's gospel. Let's go first to chapter 3, verse 18. You can turn there. I hope you will if you have a Bible. John 3, verse 18. The point of this text that I want you to see is that believing in his name and believing in him are really the same thing. There's no big difference between these two because they're used virtually interchangeably in this verse. It says... He who believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You can see that the two phrases, believe in him and believe in his name, are virtually interchangeable here. And I think all that is added when you say believe in his name is a signal that the one in whom you believe has a great name has a, a, a stature and a dignity and an authority that make your belief worthwhile. But in the belief itself, there's no difference, I don't think. Then go with me a few chapters over to chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. And the reason I go to these verses is twofold. One, because believe and receive are used here again very closely like they are in 1, 12 and 13. And the other reason is because what is said about believing here really sheds light on the moral nature of this act. Verse 43, John 5. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. That's what verse 12 said. Verse 11. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And I think the reason for that is because if you come in another's name, you come as a humble person that signals that you must give up your own glory for the glory of another. And people don't like that. But if you come in your own name, then people who rally around you can be like you and live in their own name. And so they're attractive to proud people. It's very unattractive the way he's coming. Now, what's the relation between that way of coming and faith? Verse 44, how can you believe who receive glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
Now ponder that verse with me for a moment. What is said about faith or believing in verse 44? How can you believe? Which means you can't believe if you have a love affair with the praise of men. If you are living for the praise and the glory that you get from other people, the strokes and the affirmations and the uppers from other people, then you can't believe in Jesus. Which means that believing is not the mental assent to doctrines about Jesus, is I can have plenty of mental assents to doctrines about Jesus and live for the glory of men. The devil does. What this verse tells us is something very profound about the nature of believing. It is a humbling. It is a humbling of oneself. It is a forsaking of the love affair that we all have by nature with the praise of men. Oh, how we love to be praised for what we do. Oh, how we love to be thought well of. Oh, how we love to get applause. And if we're in love with that and it's governing our lives, we cannot believe Jesus. That means believing Jesus is a forsaking of that and a humbling of ourselves so that he is the one from whom we get our peace, our joy, our uppers. So I think it's becoming clear, hope, that the faith which saves, that is, the believing which gets an authorization for sonship from Jesus, is not a belief in doctrines about Jesus, merely. One more text to show that. Chapter 6, verse 35. Chapter 6, verse 35 is a text that I think gets right at the heart of the nature of believing in John's gospel. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I take that little last phrase. He who believes in me shall never thirst to be parallel with he who comes to me, shall not hunger. And I say this, believing in Jesus is a coming to him and a finding of satisfaction in him. Believing is being satisfied with Jesus. So satisfied with Jesus that you become weaned from the sinful allurements of the world doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen perfectly in this life. But there is a new addiction when you have tasted of the bread of life. And that addiction is called believing in Jesus. So that you feed on him. You drink from his living water. You draw your peace and your contentment and your strokes and your joy from his love and grace and power and wisdom and beauty and future. We could go on and, and look at numerous other texts. We could go to John 8:42, where it says, If God were your father, you would love me. And we could talk about love as being the mark of true faith. Or we could go to John 12:46, where it says, 
while you have the light, love the light so that you walk in the light, and then refers to believing the light. There are many texts in the Gospel of John that make crystal clear for those who will see that believing is not an intellectual agreement with doctrine, merely. It is a humbling, a forsaking of the love affair with the praise of men, a holding fast to Christ as the one who will give us glory, a coming to Him and a feeding upon Him as the living bread, so that our heart's longing is satisfied and we are gradually then weaned away from the bondage of the appetites of the world. That's what it means to believe on Jesus. And so let me paraphrase verse 12 now as we go back to it. But all who receive Jesus... All who welcome him for who he is into their life and home and marriage and job and dreams. And who feed upon him as the all-satisfying bread of life. To these he gave authority to become the children of God. Now, let's go to verse 13 and compare it to verse 12. And notice two differences between these verses that raise a question, the answer to which is all important in understanding these verses, I think. Here are the two differences I see between verses 12 and 13. First, let's read verse 13. It says that these children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, what's the difference between that affirmation and what we just read in verse 12? Two differences. Number one, the actor, the person doing the action in verse 12 is who? Jesus. You see that? It says, to all who received him, he gave authority to become children. So Jesus is the actor giving authority to become children in verse 12. Who is the actor in verse 13? God. The Father, the Begetter, says, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God has begotten or caused to be born these children. That's the first difference between verses 12 and 13. Two different actors. Here's the second difference that I see. In verse 13, God is begetting children who are children by virtue of being born of God. I mean, if you father a child, it's your child. So if God begets and brings to birth a child, it's his child by nature. But in verse 12, it says that we must be authorized or empowered to become children by the Son. And I raise this question. If I am begotten by God the Father and am a child of God by nature owing to the birth of the Holy Spirit, what need I of any empowering or authorization from the Son? I mean, I'm a child of God. A child of God is a child of God, right? Why need I Jesus to authorize me to become a child? If the Father has begotten me. 
Now, here's my answer to that question. Let's step back and ask what we were like before any of this happened. What were we all like before we became children of God? Well, Paul said we were dead in trespasses and sins. But let's take John's way of saying it. John chapter 3, verse 6, it says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So before the Spirit begets us anew, what are we? Flesh. That's all. When Ruth Piper and Bill Piper begat John Piper, that's all there was. A human with no spiritual life in me at all. That's all I was by the flesh. Not until I was six years old was I anything but dead and in the flesh. So the first thing that characterizes us before anything happens with God is death and lifelessness. No spiritual resources. We're like a corpse before God. The second thing that characterizes us is guilt. We're sinners. We've all done terrible things or we failed to do wonderful things. And we're guilty before God. What do we need? We need two things then, not just one thing. We need life. And so, in verse 13, it describes for us where that life comes from. Where does the begetting, where does the conception, where does the birth come from? It comes not from blood, not from the will of the flesh, not from the will of a man. It comes from God. It's a sovereign work of grace by which I, as a dead person, am quickened and wakened and begotten and given life by God the Father, by His Spirit. And then verse 12 talks about another need. And this is a little bit hard to grasp here. Let me, let me ask you this. When God quickens you and you are a new person, what are you like? Well, you know what you're like? You're a sinner. A new sinner. A sinner with divine life. But I ask you this. When you approach the bar of God in the last day and you are covered with shame for sin, will you feel the freedom to say, I'm a child of God because you begot me anew and therefore I want my sonship, I want my inheritance. Give it to me and welcome me into your house as a sinner child. He wouldn't say yes. Something else must happen than new birth. I need an authority at that moment. I need a, an empowering. I need a right and a claim that is not my own as a sinner. And so not only does God beget anew, but he sends his son to atone for my sin to lift my guilt, to acquit me, so that He, the Son, can authorize me in Him to say to God, though sin is upon me, I, for His sake, lay claim by His authority to my inheritance. And I now 
become, in the legal, rightful sense, a full heir of all that God has to give me. So let me sum it up another way. There are two obstacles that stand between you and eternal life and me and eternal life. One is my my deadness, my spiritual lifelessness. And the other is my guilt and my corruption before a holy God. And so the Trinity, full and overflowing with pulsating infinite love, conspires how the three of them can work together to get me to heaven as a child of the King. And God the Father sends His Spirit and begets me anew and brings life to me. And He sends His Son to atone for my sin. And then this new life puts faith in this Son. And the Son then authorizes the claim on my inheritance. It's a great salvation. Because it's tailored for your need this morning. Everybody needs life. And everybody needs the authority of acquittal. To enter into the judgment hall of the Father. And the text says, you can have this authority and claim it with assurance if you will receive him for who he is. And if you will believe on him in the sense of resting in him for the peace and the satisfaction of your soul's longings. And so I urge you this morning to open your heart to do these two things, to welcome him. It is free, it is full, it is tailored to your need. Let's pray for a moment. What I'd like to do in the last moment is lead you in a prayer. And... Many of us have been praying so earnestly that God would bring to our services people who need to be welcomed into the family of God and who have not yet come in. And I suppose God has answered that prayer in this hour, that there are a few here who have never welcomed Jesus. And what I would like to do is pray a prayer that you in your heart could pray with me. And mean. Go like this. You pray with me. Either if you haven't received and believed or if you're not sure. Let's nail it down. Drive in a stake. Seal it today. Oh God. I sense right now as Pastor John has preached that you're speaking to me and that your spirit is doing something in my life. It's drawing me, quickening me, awakening me to feel the need for a Savior and a King and a guide. And I acknowledge, I admit, that without you, I'm dead, I'm lifeless, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, I'm destined for judgment. I feel it, I know it, and I admit it. And I now, by this power that has begun to draw me and work in me, open my life and I receive you, Jesus. I receive you for all that you are. I don't know all that you are. I... I've seen enough of your grace and love and wisdom and power that I know I want you and I need you. And I I pledge myself to receive whatever I learn of you and take you to be mine. And 
weave you into the fabric of my marriage and my job or my school or my roommate's relationship or my dreams. I take you. I welcome you right now. Come. And Lord Jesus, I believe you. I'm tired of resisting. I'm tired of not believing. You've got me. I believe you. And I now come to you as the bread of life and as the fountain of living water. And I turn away from all the places where I've been trying to get happiness and peace all my life long. And I just kneel down and drink from you, Jesus. And I thank you for being there. And now, Jesus, on the authority of your word in John 1.12, I say, Father... Would you grant to me my inheritance as a rightful child of yours in Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord? And all the people said, Amen.